General, there's been a breach. We need your password so we can lock down the system. My password? Yes, sir, we need your password. The password that I use? Yes, sir, your password. There's been another breach. Sir. Right, okay. I-H-A-T-E-M-Y-J-O-B-1. I hate my job, one. Good morning, Hope Ames. It's good to see you. Just so you know, my password is not I-H, I, whatever it was. It's not I hate my job. Uh, my password, I'm just kidding, I won't tell you my password either. But that's, that's kind of real life, isn't it? I mean, some, for some of us, our expectations are not being met in real life. And we're just frustrated. We're just angry. Have you ever had expectations not met in real life? Let me just give you a really quick example. When I'm driving my car, I've got my tunes on, and I know all the eyes in the world are on me. I think that I look about like this. That's my buddy Ryan Gosling. Everybody says we look alike. It's crazy. But anyway, <laughs> this is what it really looks like. You know, there's not a lot cool about driving a base model Honda HRV. But nonetheless, you know, my expectations aren't being met in reality. Now, what do you do when your expectations aren't being met in reality? Do you just give up? Do you just say, well, you know, maybe I'll just try to find something out there that does meet my expectation? Because truth is, there are some things in this world where the expectations are certainly met in reality. And sometimes the expectations are even surpassed. I always think about the most beautiful things that I've ever seen in my life, and I think about driving through Yellowstone with my family and my parents describing it, but then actually seeing it. There was nothing quite like it. And I look back at that picture, and I can see the picture, and I say, it doesn't actually do it justice. So sometimes we're like, okay, well, now my expectations aren't met. Now my expectations are met, and I'm just going to, the rest of my life, go back and forth and back and forth. What if I told you that there was actually a way that you could find fulfillment when life is really great, but also when life is really tough, when life is really fun or life is just really mundane? That's what we're talking about in this series. It's called Faith at Work and School, wherever you find yourself. We're talking about when faith meets our real life. I shared this in my e-newsletter this week, and I'm not bringing the, out the actual elements because I always talk about chocolate milk. In my sermons, I talk about two things, running and chocolate milk. It's a strange combo. But imagine you pour the chocolate syrup into the milk, and you just left it. Like, you're missing the purpose. The, the chocolate syrup needs to be stirred into the milk. Now, you come to church, you're here in this space, and this is an important place to be. This is a place where every single person is welcome to be equipped, to refresh, to actively and consciously worship, but we don't just stay here. It's important that we take our light, our faith, into our real lives. It's not to say that what's happening in this room isn't real life, but it is to say that what's happening in this room is expected to reach outside the walls of this room. That's what we're focusing on when we're talking about faith at work in school. We're talking about faith in real life and how it can really fulfill our lives whether our expectations are being met or not. I mean, really, our real-life expectations do not, they do not determine whether or not our lives can be fulfilling or satisfying. But instead, it is the content and the substance of our faith that brings purpose and fulfillment to the world around us. So what we're going to be focusing on over the next three weeks, and this week we're starting off with something extremely practical, something extremely simple. I want you to think about how you spend most of your waking hours. Now, most Christians, they'll spend anywhere between 80 to 90 minutes in a church per week. 
Now, if I get really long-winded today, you might be here for 180 or 190 minutes, <laughs> but I'm going to try not to. But where do you spend most of your waking hours? You will spend 2,400 minutes this week if you are a full-time working adult at work. Now, maybe you're like, well, I don't have a job. I'm retired. I stay home with the kids. I'm a student. What is it that you do? What is it where most of your waking hours are spent? When we talk about faith at work, I'm not just talking about a job or a career. What is it for you specifically that you spend most of your active waking hours? What is the work that you do? What's the thing that consumes the most of your time? Whatever it is for you, between the ages of 22 and 65, you will spend over 100,000 hours doing that thing. And maybe it's a combination of different things throughout those, those decades. And I just have a question. I mean, are we really going to leave it up to our expectations and what we want out of that to rely on whether or not it's going to be fulfilling? We want something deeper. We want something more dependable than that, don't we? God offers us this rock-solid faith that we can walk into this world with. Say, I've got this for you, and I've, gotten, I've, I've created a way for you to make this life fulfilling. It's by bringing your faith into these spaces. So today, specifically, I want to talk, how do we bring faith into the workplace, into the school? How do we bring faith into our lives? How do we bring faith at home when you're with your kids? How do you bring faith on the golf course? How do you bring faith into your hobbies, your activities, whatever it is that you're calling your work these days? And maybe for some of you, are like, aha, finally a series on evangelism. I'm ready to go. You heard this in 1 Peter chapter 3 this morning. Your hope as a believer, always be ready to explain it. Now, when you hear something like that, maybe you think, okay, well, if I'm bringing faith to the workplace or if I'm bringing faith into my school, it means I have to be so active and so harsh and so bold and so forceful on it, right? I need to be initiating the conversation. And so sometimes you think, well, let's say I'm in a job interview and they finish the job interview by asking, so what else can you do? And you say, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. <laughs> okay, I mean, a little corny, right? Maybe you're contacting your clients and you call out to them and say, you know, I've got you on my mailing list, but more importantly, are you in the book of life? Like, okay, maybe not. Maybe you sell life insurance. You're calling some more clients. You're like, I'm here to sell you life insurance, but I really want to ensure that you have life after death. Like, it's not helpful. Like, that's, that's corny. That's cheesy. It's creepy. It's awkward. Maybe you're like, oh, well, if I just posted about it more, right? I just need to be more blunt and obvious about it. So maybe you see something like this. I bet you won't share this because you're too embarrassed to have Jesus on your wall. This was an actual meme that was going around for a while. Unfortunately, most people didn't realize that's not Jesus. That was Obi-Wan Kenobi. <laughs> maybe... Bringing faith into the real world is not so much about the things that we're saying, but actually about the way that we're living. Because if we open up that verse, that passage that you heard from this morning, here's what it says surrounding it. You must worship Christ as Lord of your life. If someone asks you about your hope as a believer, always be ready to explain it. But do this in a gentle and respectful way. Here's how it starts, bringing faith into the real life. It starts by worshiping, the, by worshiping your Redeemer as the Savior, the Lord of your entire life. It starts by simply the way that you live. Not necessarily what you're saying about life, but how you're doing life. See, when it comes to explaining your faith or sharing your faith, biblically speaking, I know that there are examples when we're told and we're called to go out and make disciples, and we should absolutely be active and direct about it. But very clearly here in 1 Peter, written by someone who followed Jesus very closely, 
he tells us this. It starts with the action. I'm not talking about what earns you your salvation. I'm talking about the way that other people see salvation in you. It starts with the way that you're living. It starts with who you're living for and who is living through you. If you say something and follow it up with something else, people will call you a hypocrite. But if you start with the way that you live, people might actually start to ask. But it doesn't start with a Facebook post in that conversation. It's not about having a clever scripture verse memorized so you can throw it in somebody's face. That's not sharing your faith. That's holding someone hostage. Listen, I'm a pastor. It is so important for me to share my faith. It is so important for me to encourage you to share your faith. When it talks about the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians, it says it is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And I wonder if some of us, when we're sharing our faith, we need to practice a little bit more gentleness and self-control. We do it in love. We do it respectfully. We do it kindly. We bring faith into the real world in a way that's actually attractive. Because love is attractive. How do we do this? How do we do it in our work? How do we worship God as the Lord of our entire life? What if your work really became worship? Like, what if your work actually became worship? And maybe you're like, oh, that's not, what, what do you mean? How could work become worship? Well, biblically, worship and work are very, very similar, if not the same thing. Take a look at this in Genesis chapter 2. This is when God is creating humanity. God placed the man in the Garden of Eden, very beginning of the Bible, to tend and watch over it. Now, specifically, the word there is to work. God placed humanity in this garden to tend and watch over it, and that was their work. Now, the, the Hebrew word for this is avada. Everybody say avada. And it literally means to work and to worship and to serve. Biblically speaking, Work and worship are the same thing. That does not mean that all work is the right kind of worship, but the work that you're doing is worshiping something or someone. Who is your work worshiping? God wants our work to worship him. Because as we worship him, our faith is coming into the real life with us. Our faith is actually attractive. When we worship God, Jesus tells us the most important thing that you can do is love God, and the way that you love God is by loving the people of this world. The way that you worship Jesus as the Savior of your entire life is to love the people in your entire life. This is how we do it. Our work is worship, but who does your work worship? Well, let's talk about what it looks like when faith shows up at work. Whatever work might be for you. This is going to be really practical the rest of the sermon because I think that it's so important that we have these tangible things to say, okay, am I doing this? Is my faith in my workplace? Because sometimes I don't know. First off, something that we need to realize about faith at work is faith dignifies our work. I'm starting here because I think that it's really important to acknowledge some of us don't like our jobs. Me personally, I love my job. You couldn't pay me enough to get away from my job. But there was a survey that came out recently that said 64% of people, if they had the financial resources, would leave their job today. They'd quit on the spot. According to LinkedIn, 60% of people don't think that their work is fulfilling. They don't find purpose in it. They don't think there's any meaning to it. But I want to tell you this about faith. Faith dignifies the work that you're doing. 
Faith truly turns your work into something that can worship and honor God and love this world. Let me back up a little bit. This comes from the book of Psalms. This is Psalm chapter 16, verse 2. I said to the Lord, you are my master. Every good thing I have comes from you. God is taking credit over and again throughout the scriptures. It also says in James chapter 1, every good thing comes from God. Whether someone's acknowledging God or not, the good things that come through their life come from God. God is saying, I take credit for the good things that happen in this world. God once upon a time made that very clear and very evident when he said, let there be light. And boom, there's light. Don't you think that all of the good things in our life, God could just snap his fingers and we'd have it? For example, the food that is on my table, God could just snap his fingers and boom, it would be there. But that's not how God does it, is it? God instead works and brings the good things about in this world through human hands and through human work. Martin Luther, one of the greatest theologians of all time, and Luther, who all of Lutheranism is named after, he said this, God is milking the cows through the vocation of the milkmaid. All work matters to God. If your work is serving for the benefit of God's people, God's children, humanity, the benefit of God's creation, your work is worshiping God. And I think that we have to know this. We have to know this because some of us just want to dismiss and remove ourselves from our work right now. But do you know you could be a minister in your work, no matter how grand or simple it might seem. You can honor and worship God with your work so long it serves God's creation. It's worshiping the creator. It says this in 1 Peter chapter 2. This is a chapter before our reading for today. It says, you are a chosen people. You are royal priests, a holy nation, God's very own possession. As a result, you can show others the goodness of God in your work today. The work that you pick up tomorrow morning and spend the rest of your week, the work that you're thinking about, oh my goodness, all these tasks, why do I have to do them? It's so meaningless. God says, no, it's not. You, wherever you are, you're a priest. You're a royal priesthood. My goodness, you could change the world or at least you could change the life of one person around you. I mean, I get it. So many of us, we just want to change the world. But as Luther said a long time ago, and as the scriptures point us to, God's also putting food on the table through the milkmaids. I mean, think, just think about like, how much we undignify certain work that's out there. We look down on certain roles and certain jobs. God doesn't. Don't you for a second think that your work is insignificant. Whether it's the job that you always wanted or the job that you find yourself in today, God can make a difference, difference through it. When I think about the vocation that we have in our lives, I think about, well, maybe sometimes it's not necessarily what we want. Well, think about like what you most want in this world. We want to find our purpose. And I, I think about it like this. When it comes to our purpose, your purpose is to be connected with God. Your purpose is to experience God's love, to know God, to love God, to be loved by God. The reason why in the Bible, God's people are called beloved children of God is because it is literally our job to be loved by God. That is your purpose. But when it comes to your vocation, vocation is this horizontal line, and it's the way that we relate and love the world around us. Your purpose is set. Your purpose is that you are loved by God and nothing can ever change that. Your vocation, you have the choice. Am I going to love the world with this or not? Is it going to be all about what I wanted in this world or is it going to be about what God might do through me? Your work 
is meaningful wherever you are today. This is, again, emphasized in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Each of you should continue to live in whatever situation the Lord has placed you. I know that's not the most fun and sexy verse in the world. I can't believe I just said sexy in a sermon. I never thought I'd do that. But anyway, I know that's not the most fun verse in the world. But my goodness, it's true, isn't it? If God could truly create human beings from nothing, if God truly could create this universe out of nothing, don't you think God could create goodness out of wherever you find yourself today? Don't you dare let anyone tell you that the work you're doing doesn't matter. It matters. Because it matters to God. And that will inspire you, and that will move you, and that will give you reason to wake up in the morning and to walk into that space of work. Whether it is what you always dream to do or not, you have a purpose there. You have a calling there. There's a difference to be made there. I'm not saying it's where you're going to spend the rest of your life, but today it's where you are. And today God can make a difference through you. That ought to change. Rather than being the people who are grumbling at work, just we cannot wait for the day to pass. We think about work, we're like, oh my goodness, at best it's survivable, at worst it's suffocating. What am I going to do? When we allow God to move through us in whatever space we find ourselves Monday through Friday, or if you work weekends, you work mornings, nights, or midday, it will change the way that you work. This is Eugene Peterson's paraphrase of Colossians chapter 3, and I think it's so powerful. Don't just do the minimum that will get you by. As Christians, we can't be the people who show up in the workplace and just punch the time clock, get in and get out and walk away. We ought to be inspired in the places that we go, that we work in. Do your best, Colossians 3 says. Being a follower of Jesus doesn't cover up for bad work. How good is that, right? Like how many of us are like, you know what? I can't do this work today because the Lord's already doing work in me. That's not biblical. What's biblical is you are a child of God. You're a child of God. You're loved forever. Go live like it. Be inspired. Be moved. Change the world or change your workplace. Put milk on the table for your family or someone else's. Faith dignifies your work. Whatever work that may be, now, well, most work that may be, some of you might be working a job where you really need to reevaluate. I'm not going to name those at this time in this place. That's a conversation between you and the Lord. And if you'd like to talk, you can call Cassie, our admin. Anyway, <laughs> faith at work, it, it dignifies your work, but faith also frees you from your work. Now, I'm not contradicting what I just said. I'm not contradicting Col Colossians chapter 3. I don't mean faith escapes you from your work. I mean, it, it frees you from the bondage of your work. There was a professor that I had in seminary, and before seminary, before uh, teaching at seminary, he had a career in pastoral ministry. Before uh, his pastoral ministry career, he had a wildly successful business career. Wildly. And he oftentimes talked about how he found his identity in his job. And he said that he ran circles with a lot of people who found their identity in their job. Very, very powerful businessman, so he hung out with other powerful business people, powerful doctors, powerful lawyers, whatever it may be. He said something in class one day that really stood out to me. He said, too many people, when they look at their tombstone one day, it will say, here lies fill in the blank. Born a baby, died a lawyer. Born a baby, died a doctor. Born a baby, died a pastor. Born a baby, died a teacher. The work became the identity. 
The work didn't just become something to do. The work didn't just become a place where you have a boss. The work actually became the boss. And the work became everything that you had, everything that you were, everything that you thought about, everything that you dreamed about, everything that told you about you was found in your work. This has always stood out to me. How many of us, I mean, are truly enslaved by our work? Where our work tells us who we are, and we cannot escape it. Listen, I know that the heart behind it isn't evil. The heart behind it is I'm just trying to make a difference. The Bible's been talking about this for thousands of years. Again, toward the very beginning of the Bible, in Genesis chapter 11, there's that famous story, the Tower of Babel. Now, it's kind of a confusing and wild story, but here's one really nice, easy takeaway point from it. It's found in Genesis 11, chapter, Genesis chapter 11, verse 4. Let's build a great city for ourselves with a tower that reaches into the sky. This will make us famous, and it will keep us from being scattered all over the world. So with your work, are you trying to climb towers, build towers, get up on top of everything so that you can make a name for yourself? I get it. I know. Everyone wants to be known. Everyone wants to be understood. Everyone wants to hurt, be heard. God knows you. God understands you. God hears you. But as you'll see in Genesis chapter 11, the point of the story is that when we try to build ourselves up and make ourselves famous, what do we do? We forget about the people around us. When our work becomes our identity, what happens when we're successful? Well, it goes to our head. We think that we're the best. If I became a really, really successful doctor, if I became a really, really successful lawyer, a really, really successful agronomist, Iowa State, ag school, right? If I became a really, really successful teacher, if my work is up my identity, it will go to my head, and I will think, because I'm successful at this, I know everything about everything else. Because I'm successful about this, and that tells me who I am, I am a successful person. And you will become insufferable to the people around you. If your identity is in your work and your work is successful, it will go to your head. Now, at the same time, a lot of us deal with failures in our work. And if your work is your identity and it's a failure, it will break your heart. It's painful, right? And as the Tower of Babel goes up and it crumbles down and the people scatter, they understood both what it's like to be really successful and be very famous, but also to be very unsuccessful and feel like a failure. When our work becomes our identity, we become vulnerable to very serious dangers. The dangers that make us feel like we're not worth anything unless our work says we are. Just after Genesis chapter 11, God contradicts with the people building the Tower of Babel, we're saying, with what he says to an old forgotten man in a field named Abraham. He once was Abram, soon he'd become Abraham. God says to him, I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make you famous. And you will be a blessing to others. God says, I value you. You're famous to me. You're a part of my family. I'm blessing the world through you. It's not about what you're finding out about yourself through the successes and failures of your work. It's about what I say. It's about what I do through you. Listen, the towers that we can build can be pretty tall and pretty big, but nothing is as big and significant as what God says. God says you're famous to him. 
God says he wants to bless the world through you. Listen to him. I'm reminded of this guy. His name is Benjamin Nugent. He was, uh, is uh, a writer, and he was writing for the New York Times, and, and he wrote something I thought that was really powerful in an article in the New York Times when he was talking about the struggles he found when he found his identity in his work. He said, when good writing was my only goal, I made the quality of my work the measure of my worth. For this reason, I wasn't able to read my own writing well. I couldn't tell whether something I had just written was good or bad, because I needed it to be good in order to feel the same. I lost the ability to cheerfully interrogate how much I liked what I had written and to see what was actually on the page rather than what I wanted to see or what I feared to see. Here's a really good test to know if your work has become your identity. You don't believe people when they tell you you've done a good job because it's not enough. You always need more praise. And then you crumble when they criticize your work. Because when they criticize your work and your work is your identity, they've now criticized you as a person. And it's defeating. And it's discouraging. Faith in the God who says, I will make you famous. I will bless the world through you. It frees you from that bondage. It frees you from living under like this false identity that was never yours to carry. Faith dignifies your work. Faith frees you from work. And finally, faith directs your work. What do I, I mean by this? Take a look at this in 1 Peter. This is uh, just after our reading. It says, Christ suffered for our sins once for all time. He never sinned, but he died for sinners to bring you safe home to God. That's supposed to be safely home to God. Sorry about that. Focus on that. He died for sinners to bring you safely home to God. As Christians, this is who our faith is in. Our faith is in a Savior and in a Redeemer who brings us safely home to God. Your faith, the core of your faith is that you have a home and it is with the creator of this universe who's untouchable, who is safe, who loves you. He is secure. You are secure then. This is your faith and that directs your work. When you see how we got that, we got that because there is a God who loves us so much that God would come into this world and have this happy exchange with us, as Martin Luther also once wrote. This happy exchange where he takes on the things that we cannot take on. He takes on those struggles. He takes on those insecurities that we used to carry. He takes on the identities that we thought we had to have for ourselves. He has all the successes. He defeats all the failures. He did this for us. And it starts to direct. It starts to change. It starts to operate the way that we do things in our workplaces, the way that we do things at school, the way that we do things in our retirement, the way that we treat our families at home. This changes things. It directs our work. We cannot help ourselves. I want to tell you practically what this looks like. Out of the almost 30 years that hope has existed, my favorite story that I've ever heard about how someone ended up here goes like this. So when I was a kid, there was this woman who walked up to my dad and she was sharing with him the story. She said, hey, I've been coming here for a few months now and I want to tell you how I got here. I said, okay, yeah, go ahead. Tell me about it. She said, well, I, I'm working and I've built my way up into this company and I've become pretty su successful. I, I have an important job, something along those lines. She really emphasized, I have an important job. Well, that's really cool. That's neat. She said, but recently I made a terrible mistake at work. 
A terrible mistake. I don't know what I was thinking. And if anybody makes this kind of mistake in my kind of job, they lose their job. It's over. We're talking financial ramifications. We're talking PR issues. We're talking lots of big things. I messed it up for the company. She said, so as I'm going into work one day and I'm prepping some defense just to maybe possibly hold on to some position in the company, I'm scared because I'm going to lose everything that I am. Here's the part of the story that I remember so well. She said, my boss went to my boss's boss. And my boss told my boss's boss about me and about my potential and that I'm good and I should still be around to give me another chance. I asked my boss, who stood up for me, why did you do that? I remember this clear as day. She said, I work in an industry where so oftentimes bosses take credit for the people who report to them. But bosses never take the blame for people who report to them. So she's asking him, why did you do that? Live a life that worships Jesus as Lord of your entire life. Worship Jesus as Lord of your entire life. And then if someone asks you, why did you do that? What is it about you? Do you know what he said to her? He said, well, I'm a Christian and forgiveness is a big thing to me. Simple as that. And do you know what she asked next? Where do you go to church? Man. I thank God for that boss. I thank God for all the bosses out there. I thank God for all the milkmaids out there. Thank God for all the lawyers, the doctors, the teachers, the agronomists, the pastors, whoever you might be, whatever job you're working, the business folks. I thank God for those who allow their faith to direct their work. Because you might not think that you're changing the world, but you might be changing the life of someone around you. Because your faith has directed your work. You're not going to see the full results of everything that you've ever done in this life. You just won't. The world won't let you. J.R.R. Tolkien, when he was writing The Lord of the Rings, he came into writer's block. And he was losing sleep over it. One night as he couldn't fall asleep, he had an idea hit him, but it wasn't about Lord of the Rings, but instead it was kind of like a vision, if you will, about what was going on in his mind. And he wrote a story about an artist who was trying to paint a tree. And this artist was so obsessed with every single detail of the tree. So obsessed that he was taking a painstakingly amount of time on one leaf. One night, the artist realized he was dying. And this is like a fantasy. It's not a true story by any means. But he gets onto this train that's apparently taking him to heaven. And along the way, he's like, no, I'm not done. I didn't do enough. My work isn't complete. I'm an artist, and I didn't finish what I said I was going to do. I've got to make a bigger impact than this. And as he's on this train, he looks out the window, and he sees a tree. 
And he said, that's the tree. The tree does exist. And it's not my job to make it. It's not my job to complete it. And in this story, this artist realized the tree was a gift. And every little detail that he got to put into that gift was a blessing to him and a blessing for others through his gifts, through his work. As Christians, as people of faith, this world might only let you get a small little leaf done. And by the end of your life, maybe you'll be freaking out. Maybe I haven't done enough. Maybe you're already freaking out. I can't get enough done. But don't you know, the tree, the real work, the real life has already been won and already been satisfied. It's true. Here in this world, we're not going to see it all. The Apostle Paul writes about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, one of the most famous passages in the entire Bible. All that I know now is partial and incomplete, but then I will know everything, then I will know everything completely, just as God now knows me completely. My goodness, I don't know everything about this world. The truth is, I don't know everything about myself. I don't know the fullness of my potential. I don't know everything that I could do in my work. I don't know everything that I could accomplish. I won't even find out everything that I could accomplish. This world just won't let me. There's not enough time. I'm a complex person, and so are you. There's not enough time in this world to figure out everything we could do, everything about ourselves, all of our passions, all of the realizations. They're not all going to come to reality here this side of heaven. But there is a God who does know everything about you, who does see your full potential, and he's given you eternity to realize it with him. There is a tree, and so what if you only get done with a leaf? The tree didn't come from you. The tree, the gift of salvation, life everlasting, has come from our creator. So while we're here, we work at our best. We do the best work that we can Believing in Jesus doesn't excuse bad work. It inspires the work that we're doing wherever we might find ourselves today. Because we trust in the God who's done the true work for us. And invited us to be a part of him doing work through us to bless this world. Let's go ahead and remember now the work that Jesus has done for us.